Welcome to Series 2 of Assembly Point, a monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. Following a successful first series, Assembly Point provides a collective space in which industry leaders can explore the most pressing issues in fire safety and share expert information and advice. Please be aware that the views expressed by guests in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the FBA. We hope you enjoy this episode of Assembly Point. Hello and welcome to the Fire Protection Association's Assembly Point podcast. I'm Jonathan O'Neill, I'm Managing Director at the FBA and today I'm joined by Dorian Lawrence, Managing Director at Facade Remedial Consultants and Stephen Howard, Head of our Fire Testing and Experimental Unit here at the FBA. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today to discuss the impact of the recent changes in legislation and guidance on making buildings safer and of course What we still need to see is how effectively to assess and manage risk. So, in the immediate aftermath of Grenfell, the FBA investigated the 8414 testing process for the fire performance of external cladding systems. And we recommended some changes to the standard, most of which, sadly, were not taken up by BSI in their review. Nevertheless, we've now got four rigs to carry out UCAS accredited testing here at Morton in Marsh. And we've invested in the Material Identification Laboratory, so that we can identify the type of insulation material used on a building and in cladding systems that we test. Dorian, I know that you have been very interested in material identification right from the very start, certainly post-Grenfell. What role do you think these tests will have to play in the building safety crisis and assessing safety? Yes, great question. Um, with regards to uh, the 8414 test, it is a shame that your recommendations weren't taken up. We'd actually like to see it changed as well to incorporate a window into the test rig, especially with the changes in the PAS and the Fire Safety Act, the PAS 9980. We think it's essential that windows are incorporated to reflect the real life effect of a fire when it happens. Um, It's very rare that a fire occurs on a sheer wall with no windows, so we'd like to see some changes. With regards to materials testing, especially with the risk-based guidance that's been brought in under the FRAEW and the PAS 9980, essential that we fully understand the materials that are on site, because we all know what's contained in the ASBILT or the Operation and Maintenance Manual probably isn't correct in a lot of instances. So we have to make sure those materials installed on site are the correct materials. Um, We've done over 3,000 reports on various different buildings and what we found is in the region of sort of 80% of buildings over 18 metres do have quite a serious issue with those materials. So essential that we assess the correct material in the correct location. So yes, essential that you're ready for uh, the amount of testing work that's uh, that's going to be coming up, especially as we now drop down to the 11 to 18 metre category with 88,000 buildings in that sector. Steve, obviously you've got a, a, a big history in 8414 testing, interested in your thoughts and particularly how this capability will be best developed to ensure building safety going forward. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, the majority of the products that are used in the built environment were sat under system three as part of the CPR or and I assume that they will move forward in that way and in the UKCA mark and this actually means that once the products are tested and have been tested once there's no further ongoing checks 
Now, I do actually believe it's critical that given manufacturers and where we're at post Grenfell that there is additional assurance that the products that are tested, especially at large scale or even from sort of like SBI and small flame tests, that there are some underlying guarantees that the products that are tested are the ones that are placed on the market. And I think there's a lot of work to do on this area to move forward. If a specifier requires any validation that a product is the same as that tested, there's very little options in the markets at present. Um, the issues that you have is for small-scale testing is a complete repeat of the test programme um, to get a full classification um, to prove that a product still is at the same reaction to fire level that it was when tested. Um, there's massive issues over lab capacity in the UK uh, the time and cost of doing that is just not possible for the test labs currently to keep up. The other issue that you've got is when you go up to large scale testing like 8414, if that is not repeatable on a batch by batch basis, that cannot be done. And as I said, the only checks that are currently in place for the product are basically those at the outset during the test. If a validation method of proving product identity was included at test time, I think that would give an enormous uh, reassurance to the market. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, going, moving on, so in, in January 2022, we saw the withdrawal of the consolidated advice note, the previous guidance on external wall safety. We saw the publication of PAS 9980, the Code of Practice, what impact do you think this has had and do you think the government should be doing more in terms of guidance or clarification to the interpretation of building regulations? Dorian, what's your view? Um, well, the CAN only applies retrospectively. We would describe the CAN as quite, quite a blunt instrument uh, that was used. Um, I think it's mentioned over seven or eight times, remove any combustible material on buildings of any, uh, residential buildings of any height. Um, you've got to remember that replaced advice notes 1 to 22 in 2018-19. The CAN came out in 2020 and was retired in 2022. Um, so that was quite a blunt instrument and it just said take, take the materials off. With regards to the materials that we were looking at, it would possibly be able to leave some combustible material on site in rare instances. So. It, it, it just didn't cover everything in the detail that was needed. With regards to the building regulations and the explanation of building regulations, yes, there needs to be uh, a clear and concise process with guidance from the government about that. So we've got further changes in building regulations in December 2022 coming out this year. Uh, no ACM on any building, so not just residential. It does give a calorific value. We've got no combustibles over 11 metres and no combustibles to attachments. So it'd be really good to have a clear process set out by the government uh, and perhaps some workshops and some explanation on there. It's not just building regs where education is needed. And it's key that we think about the volume of change post Grenfell that there's been. We've had multiple changes to building regs since Grenfell. We've then had advice notes 1 to 22, followed by the consolidated advice note. Amidst all of this, we've had the EWS1 form, versions 1, 2 and 3, three different versions over um, four years. 
Uh, we've then had the funding element. We've had the ACM fund. We've had the four hundred million pound ACM fund for uh, housing association blocks. We've then had further funding with the one billion, the latest four and a half billion, and then a new fund that is shortly to be announced for the eleven to eighteen. They are all different. All of that funding process is different. Bring into that the Fire Safety Act with the PAS 9980, then the Developers Pledge, and then the Building Safety Act. There is a raft of guidance and legislation that needs clear explanation from the government and how it all works and fits together. It is very confusing. So what we've done is put together a CPD that we offer to uh, all of our customers and bodies uh, to help them try and pick their way through this complex and confusing situation that we're in. But it's still a very fluid situation. We still don't know the final version of the Building Safety Act with all the appendices. We still don't know the developer's pledge still isn't signed. The new fund for 11 to 18 metres hasn't been announced. And we only had two and a half, three weeks ago, the guidance come out on the four and a half billion. So we're still right in the middle of trying to work out the best way forward and which blocks fall into which categories. Um, so we do need some clear and concise guidance on it, including regulations, building regulations. Well, if that answer has, has made it any clearer to, uh, to, to, our, to our listeners, I, I, they're in a better place than I am. I must admit, it does sound exceptionally confusing. Steve, I know it's not directly t related to testing, uh, but I appreciate you've had some experience in this area. Is there anything that you would like to add? I've had very limited experience at PAS 9980, but all I can say is from my experience, it's, that was an approach that fire engineers were using in the round to assess building products prior to the issuing of an EWS-1 form. PAS 9980 does level add a a lot more detail and a lot more depth to the process and I think it is actually a welcome addition to assessing uh, external walls construction and the risks associated with those especially if uh, you have legacy buildings and buildings where you have combustible uh, insulation installed. The thing I would be interested in is are there any sort of like third-party certification schemes that currently directly address the PAS and assessing competence there's a lot in the PAS that would require a lot of information from fire engineers and consultancy practices that they are competent to undertake that and meet all the recommendations within the PAS. The third party certification is interesting. As you know, I'm a strong believer in third party certification. I believe it should be a regulatory requirement for all fire safety services and products, including fire risk assessments. Certainly the installationists uh, and, and maintainers of, of fire protection equipment, sprinklers, fire doors, fire alarms, etc., all should be third-party certificated, in my view. And to me, that's an important aspect that's missing from the, from the Fire Safety Act. Of course, we've had numerous calls for uh, the government to mandate independent third-party certification for risk assessors as a minimum. But given your background, Steve, and some of the things you were just talking about, third-party certification, do you think it would be feasible to have a third-party certification scheme that covered the design and installation of facades? Yes, I, th I think it would be entirely possible. I don't think it's particularly straightforward and would need a bit of a, a multidisciplinary approach. I mean, if you are going to issue a third-party certification on a facade, then you'd be needing to consider not only the fire elements, but also things like wind loading and water ingress of the facade and I don't um, that is technically very challenging I think under the co 
current circumstances. A third-party scheme would, would also need to be sort of like beneficial and meaningful for others operating in the trade as well and insurers, stakeholders and other people that have an interest. If we were to, if a third-party scheme was to be run, it would need to sort of like reduce costs and improve safety and improve traceability of the facade and materials that are going on and allow others who are currently undertaking extensive amounts of checking to potentially reduce their involvement. The other comment I'd like to make about third-party certification schemes, on most of the ones that I've been involved in, the, there's no insurance backing beyond sort of like liability insurance. The, the penalties involved with transgressions in the scheme usually just result in exclusion from the scheme by the particular companies. Now I think a third party certification scheme backed by insurance that potentially could get directly involved in the remediation of a facade if should it go wrong could potentially change the third party certification market in the UK. You could potentially change the government's view on mandatory third party certification as well. Possibly. <laughs> Dorian, obviously this is your bread and butter. What's your view? With regards to accreditations, yes, third-party accreditation is essential. The PAS 9980 does give some guidance on the qualifications needed for each area, but it would be great to see uh, a, uh, accreditation that binds everything together. So for the reporting side on the PAS, very busy sector for us, all correctly qualified, all correctly insured, um, but it would be nice to have a complete third-party accreditation for that. We know that uh, you know, the RICS have done it with the EWS1 um, course that they've put together, and that's worked well to bring in additional resource. The CITB Level 3 Diploma for installation has been brought in some time ago, but that's trying to, and that's under review currently at the moment, but trying to cope with the volume of work that we've got ahead of us in the UK is going to be quite difficult to get everyone up to the right level um, of accreditation and skill set because it's not just the qualification it's the experience that runs in tandem with that but uh, we would welcome um, third-party accreditation for any complete process it's uh, quite obvious there are some people in the marketplace that aren't correctly qualified to do this type of reporting and this type of work um, so yes, it's uh, yeah, much welcome. Uh, clear message there, I think. Uh, welcome is third party certification, but put an insurance backed scheme and we could be in a, in, a, in a different place. Through the horrors of Grenfell, we've seen that if a risk assessment doesn't look at the entire building structure, it can lead to serious problems. And an important change introduced by the Fire Safety Act is that the fire risk assessments look at the entire building and second, the external assessment is part of that. From your, Dorian, from your experience and your perspective, what difference will that make? It's essential that, that we look at the complete building holistically. We see all different types of and qualities of type 1 fire risk assessments. Remembering now under the Fire Safety Act, the type 1 fire risk assessment is the trigger then to look at. So in that fire risk assessment, it would say, for example, if you have cladding on the building, therefore you would need an FRAEW, a fire risk appraisal of the external wall. 
And if in that type one it said that there were concerns or suspicions that the compartmentation isn't correct, then you would need to look at that, but also incorporate that into your PAS 9980 report. I like the PAS format because it looks at facade materials, facade complexity, and then fire strategy measures. So it looks at each one of those silos, giving it a positive, neutral, and negative risk. Works out very well so that you cover all of those elements. It will make the building safer. We will be able to find out exactly what the risks are looking at the holistic building. We've done quite a few peer reviews that run that where the reports were undertaken in accordance with the consolidated advice note. Now they're done under the PAS where we can look at all of the elements of the building, for example, sprinkler systems, good compartmentation internally and so on. Um, it sometimes is possible to change the rating on the building, looking at every factor that would influence the safety. It's good that the RICS and the uh, BSI have confirmed that they're uh, both married up with regards to the scope that they cover and that they're the same. So at the end of every PAS 9980 report, we now produce an EWS1 form. Um, we've seen a dramatic rise in PAS reports since they've become mandatory under the FRA EW um, with the Fire Safety Act. The consolidated advice note wasn't mandatory. It was only there for guidance. Now it's an act of law under the Fire Safety Act, a massive rise in the volume of business, but also with regards to type two and type four fire risk assessments, because it's essential that you have that information to understand how the building will behave in the event of a fire uh, internally, how the flames will spread. There was a fire in East London recently, fourth and fifth floor cladding caught fire, but the smoke got to the 18th floor internally. So quite an issue. So that compartmentation wise is key. It will only drive to make buildings safer, to gather all of that information and understand the exact risk that, uh, that is presented. Uh, absolutely. You just wonder, um, uh, you, you talked about uh, buildings with good compartmentation and sprinklers. I wondered if you could uh, outline how, how many of these great buildings are actually out there, because uh, my suspicion is we're going to see more with the compartmentation problems and no sensible fire protection. Armour did a study. Uh, so we sit on the uh, Armour Building Safety Group, which is now the Property uh, Institute, and they did a study on internal issues compared to external issues. And the average cost of an external cladding project calculated at about 2.1 million across the portfolio that they looked at. The internal issues were calculated at about 2.4 million, but that was in most of the buildings that were reviewed. So internal compartmentation is as big an issue as the external facade. We do a lot of PAS reports and a lot of internal type two and type four intrusive fire risk assessments. It is a colossal issue, uh, understanding how the building is compartmented. You're gonna need that for the Building Safety Act, for the information, for your building assurance certificate, but you're also going to need it under the developer's pledge to ensure that the developers put the work right themselves internally as well as externally. So, um, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of issues out there, as I'm sure you can understand, that are covered up. Um, yeah, once they're covered up, uh, you just can't see them. Uh, type 1 fire risk assessment would pick issues with compartmentation up, for example, in a riser cupboard where perhaps fibre had been installed 
uh, and the compartmentation hadn't been made good, then further investigations would be undertaken to check the rest of the building. Uh, very interesting, and, and probably um, as I suspected. Now, it's taken five years uh, following Grenfell for us to start the process of changing with the Building Safety Bill, as you mentioned, passing into law is now the Building Safety Act in April of this year. Looking at the Act in, in detail, it's intended to create a lasting generational change to the way that high-risk and residential buildings are constructed and maintained, something we touched on with, with your previous answer. Doreen, I wonder whether, is it, whether you think the Act will really achieve this, or, 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 or are we, you know, is it just going to be pie in the sky? Um, are, are we going to ever get the buildings regulated the way we need to, inspected the way we need to, remediated in the way we need to? I think that's a that's a, a a really massive question to to answer in the time that we've got. Um, let's break it down into new buildings. So new buildings moving forward, much easier to control now. The construction, the design. I like the Building Safety Act, Gateway One, Two, and Three. So at planning stage, having a fire statement at the uh, design stage, making sure that complies with building regs, and then at construction phase, making sure that uh, the works have been installed as the design. So really like that process for new builds moving forwards. Yes, I think it is possible over a pretty quick period of time. Reintroduce the Clark of Works to the whole construction process. Remember, construction works in the UK haven't really been checked for 45 years. Um, you can tell me whatever systems contractors have had in place, but with the work that we've seen, they've not been properly checked for circa 40 to 50 years. So new builds moving forwards, yes, achievable, definitely. When we look at this, it's applying to retro retrospectively to get a building assurance certificate. So you're going to have to gather all of the information. Now, when we get handed a building, we don't get an awful lot of information. So think about all of that detail that you've got to get for the building assurance certificate. So you'd have to do a building safety case. You need your plans, your elevations, your specifications, your testing regimes, all of the compartmentation details, fire door survey, structural and condition survey is now required, the O&M manuals, and all the building regulation 38 information. That is a colossal amount of information to gather for a building of 18 meters or seven stories, whichever comes first. The cost to do that is between 20 and 40,000 pounds. Then you have to put the safety case together and the safety case report, then get the building assurance certificate. So quite difficult to get all of that information. Now the timeline that's been set out is April uh, 23 to register, October 23 to submit the case, and then the BSR, the Building Safety Regulator, will start to check it uh, in April 24. So quite a, quite a difficult task to get done. However, the Building Safety Regulator has said for existing stock, it could take up to five years to get round to checking the safety case. So that's a massive task um, for them on circa 13,000 buildings to check the safety case has been done properly. Um, we're currently gathering all of that information on a lot of blocks and putting that together with our building safety manager role, trying to uh, get it into a format that's presentable for a safety case. But it's a process. It's a long, drawn-out process, just trying to get the information and get all that data 
And if you, if you can imagine doing a compartmentation survey on a 30-storey building isn't a 10-minute job. You know, it's quite a process. So, yes, possible on, on new builds, definitely. A very long process to get it done on existing buildings. I think it's a bit hopeful, really. I do think it's achievable, but it's going to be a long time before all existing buildings are one, got a building safety case complete that's been checked by the building safety regulator, and two, making sure that all those works have been undertaken to the correct standard uh, to make sure that the building is completely safe. Well, it'll be interesting to see what uh, capacity the building safety regulator has to uh, to actually look at these safety cases when they eventually start coming through, because I suspect uh, the rest of the industry they'll struggle to find enough uh, suitably qualified people to be able to look at them. But I could be wrong. We, we had a, we had heard that that there was a, a, a bit of an issue with that, but we are working with the HSE and a large managing agent at the moment producing a safety case on a building as a sort of a, as a trial to see how long everything takes and uh, how the process actually evolves so um yeah it's going to be an interesting it's going to be an interesting uh, 5 years yeah definitely and that will be 10 years after grenfell shame isn't it uh, I, I agree, 100%. So the introduction of these two acts has been one thing, but of course, as I say, it's been a de- not only be a decade until, uh, until we actually get this, this stuff sorted from Grenfell. It's a decade, more than a decade, since we had the last building safety re- uh, uh, review of building regulations. Surely that has a large role to play in building safety moving forward, particularly when we consider how building methods have evolved, particularly in recent years. Given the fast-moving pace of construction innovation and the pressures on sustainability, do you think the current approved document re-approach will ever catch up with evolving building methods? And do we need, or do we need, a completely new system to ensure compliance with building safety standards? Steve, interested in your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Um, from my experience, from, the, from an ADB point of view, I think it's, it's largely guidance and performance-based guidance. So I think from that angle, the ADB approach could potentially work. There have been issues and raised around ADB and interpretation at the Grenfell Public Inquiry, and I acknowledge that. But I think as a method, I think it has merit because it's performance-based. From a testing point of view, I would question whether we're actually spending enough money on determining how best to assess buildings and testing methods and research to underpin that. I think the current standardisation process from Europe and even in the UK takes far too long. Um, We're not keeping up with innovation. Um, Standards can take years, if not decades, to produce. And the construction industry, as many of the other industries, are moving on and moving on rapidly. I personally don't have an answer to this because generation is, because when you generate a standard, there's a lot of input from various different interested parties. But I will just go say again, I don't currently think we're spending enough on methods and methodologies to actually how we assess buildings outside of the way we currently do it. Dorian, you're involved again at the the coalface here. Are we spending enough on testing and and, and are the current building regulations fit for purpose? 
I don't think the current building regulations as they stand are fit for purpose when you read the advisory sections because it doesn't work because when we look at buildings and we enter into discussions with various different parties, the advisory sections do cause an issue. However, if we look at the mandatory section of the building regulations, which has been in since 1984, since the introduction of the Building Act, B41 says no height, which there is no height restriction on. So forget the 11, forget the 18, forget uh, all of that. It says the external walls of the building shall adequately resist the spread of fire over the walls and from one building to another, having regard to the height, use and position of the building. Now, the wording from the judge at Grenfell said it didn't meet it, it didn't adequately resist the spread of flame. The wording in the Pied housing case recently with Mulally's uh, didn't meet building regs, didn't meet B41. We've got the fire service writing on various projects under 18 metres, four storeys high, saying the building doesn't meet B41, remove the cladding. So I think if everyone had worked to B41, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in. The problem that we have is how do we prove compliance with B41? So if an 8414 test was a little bit more robust and reflected uh, what happens in, a, uh, uh, in the real world when there's a building in a fire with a window, with a door, perhaps a balcony, um, we could use that as a method to compliance. Changing methods of construction and sustainability do cause an issue. Photovoltaic panels are normally Euro Class E, uh, so it's worth considering. We should start to look at buildings with them on, whether they're on the wall or on the roof, they do cause an issue. Car charging as well does cause, electric car charging does cause an issue. There are fires with um, car chargers. So we need to think about all of these other elements as it changes. So how do we make sure that we comply with B41 is really the question, um, whether that's performance based, as Stephen said, or whether it is an outright, you've got to have some form of test just to prove that you comply with B41. Very difficult for regs to keep up in that process, but there does need to be, there does need to be a change in the way that it's looked at. Do you think that, that Stephen, I'm interested in your views on this, whether building regulators and the Fire and Rescue Service um, uh, as, enforce, as an enforcing authority have enough knowledge of fire testing uh, uh, and what the implications of, uh, of, of the various test reports uh, mean as far as, the, as, far, as far as their impact on the fire safety of a building is concerned? No, I think across, I think in some areas, the regulators and others are fully aware of what's in the reports, understand the reports, can interpret correctly. I think there's a number of areas, notably on the reaction to fireside, European classification and the implications of that, that a better understanding of the workings of those standards and the European classification process would benefit the industry and benefit the uh, construction industry generally. I find I have found over the last few years that the reaction to fire elements of construction and materials is not as well understood as fire resistance disciplines. Maybe that in itself is a subject for a future webinar. Possibly. Um, right, one final question to you both, if I may. Uh, one thing that I think both our organisations um, are aligned and have in common is our mission to make buildings safer. What else do you think is needed, uh, either from the industry or the government, to make this happen to prevent, and to prevent further devastating fires like the one we saw at Grenfell Tower? Gloria. 
first of all, on the high-risk buildings, and I know high-risk isn't always over 18 metres, depending on usage as well and location. My suggestion is, and I have made this suggestion at several panel meetings that I sit on, that uh, gather all the data for the over 18s. Let's do a risk register of them. Uh, there's 2,000 circa buildings going through the Building Safety Fund. Let's focus on those high-risk blocks first of all and get those remediated. We've got to remember there's only so much resource that's qualified, competent and experienced to rectify these blocks. Do the same process for the 11 to 18s, but that's a massive task. That's 88,000 blocks. How many of those that have defects, we don't know. I would have thought it's at least half. The other thing that will speed the process of remediation up will be to sort the funding issue out. To be fair to Michael Gove, we tried really hard to sort out this funding issue, but it does get very complicated and confusing when you look at all of the different funds that we've mentioned previously whether that's ACM, whether that's the 1 billion or the 4.5 billion that's just been announced um, and another fund that's coming. It's great that the government are behind it and coming up with the funding. Now we have into the mix the developer's pledge where they're saying they'll put right their defects. But you need to sort the scope out between the Fire Safety Act and the Building Safety Bill. Is it the same scope that's necessary? The Fire Safety Act works to pass. However, the Building Safety Bill works to a safety case and compliance with building regulations. Two completely different standards. We could see the scenario where developers pledge, developer puts it right to the PAS standard, but that still might not get a building assurance certificate. So more confusion. So we need proper funding sorted quickly. We've got 88 blocks waiting to start that are subject to funding, either under the developer's pledge or under the 1 million building safety fund. They're sort of sat in between at the moment. Um, get that scope sorted. Get an extension to the waking watch fund so that um, more alarm systems can be installed to reduce cost of waking watch. Because we know they're still out there. They're still costing an awful lot of money. Some buildings we deal with are £40,000 a month on waking watch. We developed the alarm system with uh, the FPA um, to assist in that process. Um, more pace is needed um, for the existing buildings to get on with it. And also set up some sort of mental health. Uh, assistance for the poor lessees that have been caught up in this absolute nightmare for the last sort of four or five years. Um, it, it's a, it's an, a, a, an absolute uh, travesty, really, the mess that the system is in. But pace is needed, clear and concise guidance to funding and how that's obtainable. Do what they did in Australia. Government paid for the lot, then asked the developers to pay it all back. That's sort of happening at the moment, but we're still in a very much uh, a liquid state. Moving forward to the smaller blocks, 11 to 18 metres, get those checked quickly to make sure that they are safe. Because 18 metres still could be six storeys, 17.7 metres, six storeys. Those need to be checked quickly to make sure that they are safe and then introduce um, some form of funding for them. So all happening, but just not quick enough, unfortunately. But we do see some good progress with regards to developers stepping in, saying that they'll pay for the works and rectify it. So I'm really pleased with the progress the industry has made um, from that side. Um, but yes, lots can be done with regulations, making it clearer and more concise moving forward to make sure our new stock is compliant. And then working with the Building Safety Act is going to be, uh, we need to try and simplify that where possible. So lots of change coming 
and uh, yes, lots of lots of things the government could do to assist and make it work. Steve, from from, from your perspective, you know, is, is there is there anything that could be done to to, to, to make things better? Yes, I believe so. I mean, I have limited experience on site visits, but but one of the things that was notable to me is almost every building is unique. And whilst we don't want a uniform built environment and we want variation and whatever else, that most of the building aesthetics and things like that and the functionality would not be impacted by better standardisation. I've also got first-hand experience of the same mistakes from my experience just seem to be repeated over and over again. You're going out on site and there's dampers are not smoke control dampers or fire dampers are not installed correctly. Insufficient room has been given for services passing through basements. Uh, attachments at locations where you require cavity barriers and things of that nature. And it's that sort of element that I think we could vastly improve upon coming up with a construction more standardized construction method that means you go into into a building and into building control into the building safety regulator into, in the future with a standardized accepted details from my experience buildings just vary hugely and the issues that you get with them are reflected in that variability there seems to be a lot of work going on or a lot of remedial work going on to which I would have thought could be addressed at the design stage. Interesting, interesting thoughts. Well, when it comes to the end of our discussion today, for me, it's been fascinating. Thanks again both for joining me. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. To avoid missing out on future episodes, hit the subscribe button. To listen to previous episodes of Assembly Point or for more guidance and resources on reducing the risks of fire, please visit thefpa.co.uk.